Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me, Bill Arnold. So glad that we have this afternoon to spend together. Looking forward to uh, both hours. Uh, Jay Warner Wallace is my guest in this hour, and we're going to open up the text line, let you ask questions, but we're also going to have him for a full, well, I shouldn't say full hour, nearly a full hour, uh, because he's got a construction project going on at his house. And uh, he'll have to cut out a little bit early, but uh, get your questions in right away. Send me uh, a text at 877 Nine three three two four eight four again eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four coming up in the second hour as well. Doctor Ken Blanchard, co-author of the One Minute Manager, is going to be my guest as well. It's going to be a great day. Let me take a little break and bring on Jim. We love hearing from Faith Radio listeners. It's easy to get in touch with us through the Faith Line. When you call 877-933-2484, listen to the greeting, and then press the number 1. Then leave a message for a show host or general manager, Neil Stavum. You can also ask a question about upcoming events, and the event coordinator will contact you. Or if you'd like information on a specific program, you can inquire about that as well, and the producer of that show or another staff person will get back to you. Another way to access program information is through MyFaithRadio.com. Look under the Programs tab for specific show information, including recent guests and topics. Again, the number for the Faith Line is 877-933-2484. That's 877-933-2484 or 877-93-FAITH. Give us a call anytime and leave a message to stay connected to Faith Radio. things I love about this show is I learn a lot on this show, and I always learn something from uh, Jim Wallace. Uh, he is a Dateline featured cold case homicide detective, but he's also a very popular national speaker, best-selling author, and he is a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview and also adjunct professor of apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, which is at Biola and Southern Evangelical Seminary. He's also a faculty member at Summit Ministries, so he's got a lot of cred, but uh, we're always glad to have him back. Jim, welcome. Oh, thanks. That's why I put that stuff on my resume, right? It's going to appear like I have some credibility, <laughs> even when you and I both know I don't. That's okay, of course. Though. It doesn't matter. So that doesn't matter, right? how, how is living in your technology world right now? Well, you know, we, I think we're busier now. I was telling my wife a, a few minutes ago than we, we have, only because the, the, it, this is a very low-drag, high-speed environment, right? So yeah. before, if you said, well, I want you to come out and speak to my church— but it required flying me out the day before. Uh, you know, I'll be there for three days. I mean, in terms of what it would cost on my side in terms of commitment, and what it would cost on their side in terms of flying me out, you can see why that that's a now it's a matter of well, can you come on? Uh, you know, basically put a shirt on, right. <laughs> come on, uh, and, and talk right. to our church, and it's going to cost you in terms of investment about the same amount of time it takes to actually talk to the church. And this is great, right? And suddenly that's why I think you're seeing. Uh, so much more work can be done, and maybe we're learning from this, right? So maybe the the, the happy takeaway will be that we will um, incorporate this kind of immediate access uh, 
to, uh, to fellow church members, um, and, and it'll become part of our habit, right? So if before you, you maybe maybe I'll see a, a new Thursday night Q and A, or right. you know something will happen in digital format. And if nothing else, um, I think a lot of pastors, uh, especially uh, in, in smaller communities, have maybe never um, put their foot in the digital waters, right? Mm-hmm. But they've never uh, had to figure out like how do I do I need a YouTube channel? Or if I did have a YouTube channel, how would I broadcast live on it? How do I reach my people? And now they've been forced to ramp up the technology. Um, and, and so I think that's just probably a good thing because in the end, I, I think there'll be some shadow of what we've experienced or some t- learning takeaways that we'll, we'll press into service later on. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Interesting that you and your wife were married for 18 years and neither of you were Christians. How do you compare Yeah, the, we were the, 18 the, years together before we became Christians. Yeah, that's yeah. right. How do you compare the the difference between uh, before uh, Christians and then after? Well, I think there are definitely – so I had this transcendent view of marriage before I was a Christian, but it wasn't a transcendent view based on the transcendent designer of marriage, right? It was a transcendent view that I did not – my parents did not stay married. Okay. And so my transcendent view was that nothing's more important than marriage, that I love marriage more than I love my wife, and mm-hmm. I do. And and that was going to be the highest value because on those days when you feel like you want to choke each other – um, if you love your marriage more than anything else, then well, you're going to move through it because you didn't stop loving marriage just because you had a bad day with each other. Mm-hmm. So for me, a lot of it was that I did have this transcendent view before. So, but but, but what has helped, and I, probably the, the basic skills that 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 change things for me, um, was just seeing things. And you know, what's great about scripture is that the New Testament describes the world the way it really is, and it describes us the way we really are. And there's a book out there called, I think, called Love and Respect. You probably have had the writer, if you haven't had him on, you probably thought about it because this book has been a real help. He describes what's called the crazy cycle. And what he basically says, out of the description of, of men and women in Ephesians, when Paul talks about this, um, that men, are, that the, the desire of their heart is to be respected. And for women, often the desire of their heart is to be loved. But when when women don't feel loved, they don't respect the person who's not loving them. And when men aren't respected, they don't love the person who's not respecting them. Mm. And so you'll see that what's happening here is you have this sense that I'm not getting the one thing that I really need. And so therefore, I'm withholding the other thing that the other person needs. And this causes a cycle that continues to ramp up. And the way to stop it is to say, even if I'm not getting the thing that I need, I'm going to show the other person the thing that they need. And as soon as you do that, Guess how they respond with the yeah. thing that you needed all along, and it stops the cycle. And and when I realized that in Scripture, I thought, wow, that's so that is such a truism. And and if you just remember that, that's why we we have to reach out to each other in a marriage, and provide the thing the other one doesn't um, feel that they're not getting, or, or you might think that she doesn't deserve that, or he doesn't deserve that today. Mm-hmm. But if you will do it anyway, um, you'll find that that person will respond in a like manner. So th- so those kinds of things that you you, you discover in Scripture. Also, the thing I think that helped me also is when I when I got saved, I realized that every conversation I was having with Susie was really not between me and Susie. Uh, you know, it's not you know, before I got before I became a Christian. If if you said something offensive, well, you know, you've kind of offended Susie, and that's like you're each other's offended person. But but now that I'm a Christian, I realize no, that's a conversation with me and Jesus. And in the end, I don't want to have to apologize to God for something I shouldn't have said in this conversation. Now I'm gonna make sure I don't say anything. That's because this is between me and God. And how she behaves is not between me and her. It's between her and God. Right. I don't have to get in the middle of that. So once I realized this was between me and God, 
it it changed the way because there's some things you might think, well, you know, it's about. I, I often feel like uh, I want to be a little bit unforgiving. I think we all are that way, right? Mm-hmm. But when you know you're dealing with Jesus face to face, you know what, how much you've been forgiven for. And let's face it, the people who are the least forgiving are people for whom they, they think there's nothing they need to be forgiven for. They think that they are they have, everything's good with them. They're the least forgiving. When you realize how much you need forgiveness, you're far more likely to be forgiving yourself. Mm. Yeah, what an interesting start, Jim. And that was an unplanned question. So, uh, well, this is the most important. Like we do apologetics, right? We do right. We make the case for Christianity. We want to be able to answer questions, especially for young people. But in the end, what I tell young people at Summit is that the most important trajectory decision you're going to make, and when I say that, I mean that you make these decisions early. If you're flying to the moon and you're just took off from Earth, you can get all the way to the moon. You're only a mile from the surface of the moon. You make a two-degree error that far into the trip, you're okay. You're still going to land on the moon. But you make that same two-degree error as you're leaving the planet Earth, <laughs> you're going to miss the moon by thousands of miles. Those right. are trajectory decisions. Those yeah. matter a lot. And I tell young people all the time, it turns out the most important trajectory decision you're going to make is not your career or your ministry or your education. It's your spouse. Mm. And you can have a, a a terrible choice of of occupations, but if you've got a great marriage, it, it all works out. If you got a bad marriage, but you met the best, you know, you're a doctor, you've got all that other stuff. Trust me, it's still a train wreck life. Spouse matters, and I think sometimes young people spend much more time planning for their careers, planning for their ministries, planning for their education, charting a course for their education, and they just think they'll fall into a relationship. But it turns out you need to be as intentional about your relationships as you are about everything else. Yeah, I think the author you're referring to is Emerson Egerich. That's not right. That's right. That's right, Emerson. Yeah, he's uh, that. That if, if okay. So I'll just give him a plug on this. If there's one book you're going to buy in marriage, I like that one. I also like uh, Francis Chan's book on marriage. Uh, but that that one, uh, Emerson's book, is gold. Hmm. All right. So I'm driving. Uh into work today, Jim, and I'm thinking, okay, I get to talk to Jim Wallace today, which always I look forward to. And I was thinking about, I want to ask Jim, the difference between cynicism and discernment. Mm, that's 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 a good one. Well, I think our, our human nature, would you agree, is to be cynical? Yes. Uh, and call it discernment. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Because, right. Because not, discernment just sounds so uh, uh, important. And, oh, it does. And yeah, right. And and cynicism just sounds like like a cop. Right. Now, but but there is a difference. But I think you have to. So I guess what you, what you want to do is you want to re- retain a healthy skepticism. If, and if that's what you mean by cynicism, but that really isn't the true definition of cynicism, right? But if, but if what you mean is a, a healthy skepticism, I think that's okay because in the end uh, we're called to be very wise and and have a healthy skepticism where we're measuring everything against God's word. And, and this is called. We're called to do this many times in the New Testament, especially by Paul and by, by uh, the brother of, of Jesus and by others uh, who write on the pages of the New Testament. That we are to measure this and to to test, uh, to test the spirit to make sure it's from God. And and if you had a healthy uh, skepticism, you're far less likely, for example, to accept what maybe the Mormon missionary is going to tell you at your door tomorrow, right? Uh, but but now 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 skepticism in that nature can sometimes be defined as cynicism, mm-hmm. but a lot of times cynicism is defined as this inclination right to believe people are just purely motivated by self-interest, right? In other words, that they're they're, they're scamming me. 
assuming up front everyone's scamming you. Mm-hmm. Now, it may just very well be that someone's not trying to scam you. They're just wrong about the, the theological principle or they're wrong about their notions of God. So I think to be discerning means to have skepticism without thinking that everyone's in it to try to do something evil. They may be well-intentioned, but, you know, uh, wrong. You can be sincere and sincerely wrong at the same time. So I think that's a, a difference we have to retain. It's about character, right? Mm-hmm. I used to say that, that, that sometimes Christians are more like chihuahuas than they are like Great Danes, right? Because chihuahuas are always barking loud because they, they feel like they're the smallest dog in the yard, and they're constantly in a defense mode, and they're trying to sound loud so they can push off the, the person, you know, or mm-hmm. the dog that looks like it's, it's bigger. Well, we don't want to have that fight or flight. We happen to hold the worldview that's the Great Dane worldview of worldviews. So there's no point in us acting like a chihuahua when we happen to be the big dog in the yard because it turns out that Christianity does explain the world the way it really is. And if you don't think it does, you probably haven't worked the kind of cases I've worked where over and over again the nature of humans is absolutely uh, as described by Scripture. <laughs> you see it over and over. Now, you might argue, hey, you have to believe Christianity is true to think that Christianity is saying something true. There's something there's some ancient – this is how I got started as a Christian. The pastor just convinced me that, that Jesus held ancient wisdom. I didn't have to think he was God in order to be interested in the ancient wisdom part. Of course, the more I investigated Jesus, the more I changed my view on him. But but it started for me by just saying, hey, what kind of ancient wisdom can I steal? Look, at some point, the ancients probably know something that they could pass on. You, you would read the, the writings of Socrates, and you would go, ooh, this is good stuff. Well, <laughs> people read the writings of all kinds of ancient philosophers. Well, why not read the writings of an ancient theologian named Jesus? Yeah, good point. Jim Wallace is my guest. We're going to take a little break. When we come back, lots more. If you have a question for Jim, let me know what it is. Send me a text to 877-93-FAITH, Back to the show. Jay Warner Wallace is my guest. He's a regular contributor here on the show. I'm always glad to have him on. And when he comes on, I always learn a lot. So, Jim, I want to go back to this discussion we were having about cynicism and discernment. You know, as a detective, when uh, people are telling you their stories, I assume your posture is one of complete skepticism. Yes, but that's really utilitarian, right? So, for example, yeah, I I will always assume the worst. Uh, Assume everyone's, let's put it this way if you assume everyone's telling you the truth, you never solve anything because you just run around in circles. I mean, in any group of of, a crime, someone's going to lie to you about something. So, how do you get to that point? Well, you start off with just a healthy, robust, and it's not – I mean it's healthy from the perspective of a detective, but you can't bring that home to your regular life, right? You couldn't, and that's where I think that the trick is. And you see a lot of – I see a lot of investigators, a lot of cops who have to deal with a certain skill set when they're out handling calls. And then when they get home, it's hard to turn that off, right? It's hard to kind of shift out of that. I was lucky. I live here in Los Angeles County, and I live about you know 47 miles, 50 miles from my place of work. So uh, that's not unusual in Los Angeles. This is why I think, for example, California is not suffering COVID-19 as as much as, say, like the state of New York, because we are a suburban, horizontal environment. We're not a vertically dense, 
city or urban area that has uh, mass, tra mass transit. We have the worst mass transit probably anywhere in the country, and that's actually protecting us right now because we're all in cars right. driving individually. Yeah. And this has been going on since – remember, I was an architect before I was a detective, and when you look at the history of cities, cities that are built pre-car look like New York. They look like Chicago. They look like San Francisco, mm -hmm. all pre-car cities. Cities that are built post-car look like Los Angeles. You know, So we don't need rapid transit. The car was already in place, and now you can live 30 miles from work. And back then, you could get there in 30 minutes. Well, for me, it me sometimes two hours. Well, that two hours driving from work to home allowed me to turn off all that, that, that practical cynicism that helps me at work and not bring it in the front door with me at home. But I, it is hard. Uh, but but again, what you're doing in, in, in law enforcement, at least you're, trying, you're using this almost as a device that helps you to push further to say, well, I'm not going to believe this guy's statement unless I can corroborate it in some way. Now, you can't do that with your kids and your wife and your friends. Uh, I don't expect you to. But but if you're working in this kind of investigation, you always n know that no matter what anyone says, until you can corroborate it to some level, until you've got all the four things we always talk about that make a reliable witness, until you can do that, you can't trust it. And so people will say all the time, well, isn't eyewitness testimony uh, unreliable? Inherently, we've read so much about this. Well, yeah, it is. But that's why you test it. Now, if you test it, you can remove that unreliability so you can actually trust what's being said. And that's what I did with the gospel. But more importantly, if cynicism says that, look, if someone makes a claim about theology, some teacher on the Internet that you're watching, well, I, don't, at least be cynical enough or at least be skeptical enough and discerning enough to say, okay, I'm going to measure that now and see, is that true? And how are you going to do that? You're going to open your scripture. And if he's using, for example, or she's using verses to make the case for something you suspect might be heretical, then write those verses down. And you go back and see what those verses actually say in the context of that passage. And that kind of cynicism, that kind of skepticism is really called discernment, right? Because you're mm -hmm. always measuring. Look, if, if that was the case, uh, go back to any person knocking on your door. If it's Jehovah's Witness, if it's a Mormon, they're going to make claims allegedly from your scripture. The, the question is, do you know enough about your scripture in real time to be able to say, well, that's not true? Uh, mm -hmm. Or is it the kind of thing you need to write down and say, well, I'm going to get back to you on that, and then you're going to go take a look to see if that's true. But a lot of the people that are converted by such efforts are people who are not discerning enough or interested enough to actually go chase it down to see if it makes any sense. Mm -hmm. So then how would you point out bad theology without looking like a theology snob? Well, I mean, again, a lot of first of all, you make a distinction between what are uh, theological essentials and what are non-essentials, right? Mm -hmm. And let's face it, there's a lot of stuff that we would say that are, are, are hills worth dying on. Right. And then you uh, you have friends who are in different denominations and different kinds of churches that you would say, well, we don't we, we, we agree on the essentials. We divide over non-essentials, so let's say we have grace and liberty with those, but we would agree. So for a, for example, if someone's going to deny the deity of Christ, they're probably not going to be able to, to sit with you in right. fellowship as right. a Christian, right? right. Because that's one of the essentials. Now, right. what, now there are some some secondary dominoes that fall from that. So, so why do we believe that God is triune? Because we, if if you believe in the deity of Christ, you've got to reconcile this with well, who, then who's God the Father then? So, almost every effort to reject the triune nature of God results in demoting Jesus to the first amongst created, or the prime of, of all created, as Jehovah's Witnesses will say, he's the firstborn of other created beings. You have to demote 
uh, Jesus. Even Mormons will demote Jesus. He's not God by nature. He earned that right through – he was exalted after living the perfect life. And this is also the offer that, that Mormons make all of us. We can be exalted also as Jesus was exalted. But that means that by nature, Jesus is just human, and he exalts later. We think that Jesus is divine by nature, For is John chapter 1, right? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. It says that all things came into, came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing that has come into being it came into being with, apart from Jesus. Nothing. That means that that, that 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 if you're saying Jesus came into being, well, no, no, it says that nothing came into being apart from the creative work of Jesus. So that's why we say Jesus is good. Now that means you're going to have to move towards some understanding of the triune nature of God, the classic triune. And why this is why, for example, in the first centuries of the church, this argument was raging, right? Because people are trying to understand. This is what happens if we demote Jesus, or if we move away from the triune nature of God, and we've got all these passages in Scripture in which all the attributes of God are assigned to Jesus. He speaks as though he is God. He does all these things that resonate as though he says he comes from the same place as God. He gets to make final judgments as God. He heals and forgives sins <laughs> as God. You're stuck with this guy in some, some form of deity. So then they get to wrestle with, okay, so then what, how do I, what's the Holy Spirit? What is, and this is why the, the Trinity is not a problem for Christianity. The Trinity solves all the problems that you might find on the pages of Scripture because now it makes sense. It's okay. It's the triune nature of God. One being three persons. You know, when if I made up something about you, even if it was flattering, you would probably say, well, well wait, that's just not true. If I said, you know, Jim Wallace plays a really mean French horn, you right. might find that flattering, but you go, that's just not true. I, I've never picked up a French horn in my life. But people make up stuff about God all the time, and people don't necessarily, Christians don't come to their defense as quickly as they should. Yeah, and I think sometimes with some motivations, right? So, I mean, what would motivate you to say I play a French horn is different than what I might, what would, might be motivating me to change the nature of God. I see young people, for example, in this generation, Gen Z, that really have been surrounded by messaging from culture that, that I think kind of um, encourages them to try to change the nature of God to meet the cultural right. expectations. Mm-hmm. So they'll say, well, Jesus never said anything about same-sex marriage or gender issues or whatever it may be. Uh, And so therefore, since he never said anything about these things, I'm free to interpret what Jesus might have said. (laughs) Right. Right? And then you'll see this all the time. So what's driving us to change the nature of Jesus or the teaching of Jesus is that we have a desire, which I get. I understand. And that desire is such that we would love it if Jesus would just affirm our natural fallen desires, yeah. wouldn't you? I mean, then right. you could just do everything without worrying about it. Yeah, That's the problem. That's yeah. what's driving our, our decision-making. And you created God in your own image. Jim Wallace is That's my guest. Right. Send over questions if you have any, 877-933-2484. I know you're enjoying this conversation, so you might just want to sit and listen. But if you have a question for Jim, 877-93-FAITH. You can uh, email me too, bill at myfaithradio.com, bill at myfaith radio.com. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. Jay Warner Wallace is my guest. Always enjoy when Jim can come on. Right before we went to break, we were talking about how people can decide to create God in their own image, which is the absolute wrong thing to do. You've got to meet God on his terms and not ask God to meet you on your terms. That's the mistake we all, uh, many make when it comes to uh, searching for answers spiritually. Does that sound fair, Jim? Yeah, it does. Yeah, and I think we should expect that our, our views are going to be substantially different oh, yeah. than God's views. And and it always cracks me up. I, I've started kind of sharing this with young people, that we should have this expectation that if we embrace God's perspective on any number of these hot topic issues, that we are going to run into problems with uh, with people who don't agree. And that, that, that you, you, you can't avoid the friction that you're going to. I love that Sermon on the Mount, right? Because Jesus is in, in the presence of a bunch of of the crowd. They called the crowd, and it says when Jesus saw the crowd, he retreated from that crowd and he went up on top of a mountain. And after he sat down, the whole crowd didn't come to him. His disciples came to him. So now he separated his disciples from the crowd, and he just starts to teach his disciples. And he starts with all the blessed, right? The Beatitudes in chapter 5, I think it is, of Matthew. And he talks about how blessed are those. He's referring to the crowd. <laughs> blessed are those, right, who uh, you know, uh, are, are poor in spirit, who uh, will mourn, who are gentle, who are, are, are persecuted or who uh, actually uh, pursue righteousness, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then blessed are the, the merciful and the pure in heart and the peacemakers and those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. He always – those all eight of those things, he's talking about those, those, those. Then at the end of that, he turns the corner and he says, blessed are you. The first time he does it, this is a different – now he's talking to his disciples now. Because if you think about it, that, that what he's saying about the crowd is uh, it's encouraging to me. He says those folks are blessed even though they have suffered from all this, this longing and mourning, and, and they're, they're blessed. Then he gets to the, to the disciples, and he says, blessed are you. And now this next thing he says is the first time it sounds bad. He says when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, that's the expectation he has for his disciples. Not if, when. Mm-hmm. Because, and he says, and by the way, rejoice and be glad, because you know your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the the prophets who were before you. So, so I guess my 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 question is is that if we feel like hey we're 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 getting along with culture and everyone loves us, there's probably a problem, probably a disconnect, because Jesus never said that would happen. He said just the opposite would happen. If you're part of the crowd, that's one thing. But if you're part of my disciples and you're actually going to repeat what I've taught you to other people, then you can expect this other thing to happen to you. And that's exactly what happens the minute you start to uphold. And just make no mistake about it. We've talked about this before, you and I, that if, 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 a, if a culture rejects the, the moral teaching of your master, they are rejecting your master. They, they cannot you know, say, hey, uh, I love Jesus, but uh, you know, this, this thing over here you guys believe about marriage, is, that's crazy. Well, really, that came from Jesus. And, and if you think that Jesus never said anything about this, uh, well, you're wrong because Jesus said that I didn't come to change any of the law and the prophets. And anyone who does change the law, any small piece of it, will be, you know, is, is going to be, you know, cursed, and won't be called great from the kingdom of heaven. That's for sure. Now, now think about that for a minute. If you really want to know what Jesus has to say about that, what Jesus was saying is, if you want to know what I think about this issue, go read the Moses and the prophets, because I, I affirm what they said about it. 
Sometimes you don't say anything new about a, a subject because it's like, duh, do I really need to cover that stuff with you? I mean, you know what I think about that. I mean, if it's so self-evident, I don't expect you. Jesus, by the way, says nothing about child abuse. He says nothing about bestiality. He says nothing about any number of horrific things that we do to each other. But we don't think that those things are okay to do. If you start taking a look at the things that Jesus didn't talk about, some of those things, I'm sure, he was like, guys, you already are familiar with the law. You're already familiar with Moses mm-hmm. and the prophets. You don't need me to say those things again. Yeah, that's really interesting. The uh, a listener just chimed in and said uh, the Bible is the truth. So those who so for those who feel they can change what God created from the from the beginning, how do we show those thinking this way in love that they need to pray to the Creator about their situation? Well, almost always, whoever is trying to twist biblical truth begins with some slice of biblical truth. Mm. So in other words, it's not as though they, they jump in without any sense of what the New Testament teaches. Instead, what they're trying to do is to convince you that the New Testament actually teaches this thing you know isn't true. <laughs> so that's what gives us common footing. Mm-hmm. So that means I can actually go back to the Scripture then and look at that verse in the context of that chapter, and I can show them where they went wrong, right? But you have to know enough about the context of the verse. And, and, and look, if you're saying – if you're going to try to make a case by beginning in the Scripture, then at least you have to treat the Scripture the way it was intended to be treated, right? Mm-hmm. You see the very next line says just the opposite. I get this all the time when it comes to issues of, of let's say, blind faith. You know, when Thomas is uh, – he, he, he wants to touch Jesus, wants to see it for himself. And then Jesus at the end of this says that, you know, blessed are those who, who didn't see this, Thomas, yet still believe. And people will say, see, you don't need any evidence, and you're actually more blessed if you don't have any evidence. Well, then read the next line. The next line is in context, 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 context. He says – he talks about other evidences and proofs he gave the disciples. So clearly he's not going to talk out of both sides of his mouth. If evidence isn't important, then he wouldn't spend 40 days with the disciples making many more convincing proofs in Acts 1. So in other words, if you're going to make a claim, I can now take you further into that verse and into other supporting verses to show you the proper interpretation. So the great thing about people who want to twist Scripture is they usually begin with Scripture. So that that, that becomes your tool to help them see the truth. Yeah, Jim, if Satan was wanting to get your convince you into something, wouldn't you just want to pervert about 3% of the truth or 4% so you buy most of it? Yeah, every good liar I've ever met, okay. every interview of every suspect I've ever met who was an accomplished liar, what he'll do is he'll change just just a ten percent of what that was. So, if if he's saying that that he was not at the murder scene on the night of the crime, he'll give you something that he was at earlier. That the whole day will be filled with truth statements, but there's a missing piece that he's modifying, mm-hmm. which makes it a little bit harder for you. And it, and it sounds reasonable. You might even go to find support for some of those other things you said he did. He said he did, but the reality is is it's always good liars uh, build on 90% truth, and they twist that 10%, right? Mm-hmm. So if I said to you, for example, uh, play a game of, of, of lie or not lie, right? And I'm, I'm saying I've got a, a dog who is a corgi who sheds all over my house. You know, his, his, his name is Spot, and he, he's con- – look, I could tell you all kinds of accurate things about my dog, but just change the name. It's harder to catch it as a lie. Because I might even say, yeah, I love this uh, pedigree dog food, the, the, the short can of dog. I, I'm starting to give you details that make it sound like I'm telling you the truth about a dog that I have. I, have, I seem to know something about corgis. Right. I seem to know something about the dog food, but I've just changed his name. So technically I've told you a lie, but it's got so much truth in it, it starts to sound like a truth. 
Mm. And that's what good liars do. And so the same thing happens in Scripture. People who pervert the truth, they build on all kinds of things we can agree on, and then they make a subtle twist to the 10%, and it changes everything. Yeah. Our bodies and minds uh, really fight not to tell the truth, don't they? I mean, if you're— well, this is, Yeah, it's, it's a Romans 2 thing, okay. right? Okay. Yeah, say more about it, that. You know, it was consciousness, right? I, I remember one time I was taking a class on, and it was a class that taught people how to, instead of doing a lie detector class, I was doing something that uses voice. Voice. We would actually hook up people, their voice, and we would ask them questions. And we can measure from the inflections of their voice, the FM waves of their voice, we can tell if they were lying. It's like a truth detector. And we all got trained in this who were working with uh, suspects, the way I was. So it was by, by four of us. So we go to this training, and the guy says, we're going to ask a couple of false questions here just to show the, the suspect that he's telling a lie. So you ask him, is the wall green? I want you to say yes, even though you know it's not. Okay, yes. And then I show him how his FM waves. Then this instructors try to, t- to tell us that the reason why people get nervous and, and change their inflection, their, their FM waves when they lie, is because they are afraid of punishment. They're afraid of being punished. That's the only reason that's motivating it. Hmm. Well, wait a minute. I'm not going to punish him for saying something about the wall. So why does it show me he's lying about the wall? He's not going to suffer any punishment or any shame for lying about the wall when I gave him permission to lie about it. <laughs> it's Romans 2. It's that we know in our subconscious, we know truth. We are hardwired to know it. You're not going to be able to run from it. All of us, even unbelievers, our consciousness testifies to the existence of the designer who is, knows right from wrong, who has designed us to know right from wrong. Even when we're given permission to lie, we, we show that we're being deceptive because we don't like it. It, it runs against what we, we know right from wrong, and we know we shouldn't lie even when there's no consequence. So it's not about utilitarianism or – it's not about pragmatism. It's about you have been designed with a consciousness from God, and you know right from wrong. You can't get away from it. It's a Romans 2 thing. Mm-hmm. I was watching a, a story of a, a profile of this guy who had committed this crime and just some of the expressions that he used uh, in defense because he was completely lying were things that I found interesting where he his wife was uh, m- missing because he killed her. He, when asked where she was, he said, I just have no idea. And I go, well, how can a husband have no idea where his wife is? No idea. Yeah. yeah. So what you're doing is you're doing what we call forensic statement analysis. You're looking for deception indicators, right? What we're trying to do is to hear the things that aren't being said. Okay. Right. So that's 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 part of it. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, you know, sometimes sometimes people will even give away what they shouldn't know. But they let on that they do know this right. thing, and that tells you, okay. So we, we've got a bunch of these in our case where it's on Dateline, a bunch of these where we're doing an interview, and the guy slips and says one little thing, and it goes – and sometimes you don't even catch it in real time. You only catch it when you watch the video later because you were so involved in the conversation. You just didn't catch – you you realize what he just said? He can't say that unless he knows something he's not supposed to know. <laughs> right. Right. So, so you don't even catch it in real time. That's why we have a bunch of guys in another room who are watching the thing on video because they're not making they're not thinking about the next question they're just evaluating questions and responses and they'll catch things that I won't catch and then they'll knock on the door hey can I talk to you for a minute <laughs> and they'll yeah. say hey dude says <laughs> come and watch this look at this and I go okay I go back in and I can follow up now yeah. because I missed it right because I was in the middle of trying to formulate the next question so anyway, Jim, what this, a, it's a cool way to do it what about when they when they don't answer your question but they give you more information like did you steal this cookie and the answer is i would never steal a cookie Oh, that, like, that kind of thing, what you just said? Yeah. 
this is a key indicator of deception. 100% guilty, right? Always will start with, why would I do that? I don't need cookies. I got uh, two dozen cookies in the closet here. Why would I steal a cookie? I got no reason to steal a cookie. I got more cookies. Okay, I didn't ask that. I I asked you, the, the question I asked you requires a yes or no answer. Yeah. When somebody says that, why would I do that? That's that to me is okay. We need to ask a few more questions in there. Yeah. Doesn't mean it does. By the way, it does not mean he's being deceptive, but it is pretty common of deception just to do something like that. Yeah. So it's a this is an art as much as a science. It just means that I'm, it's pointing me to some place that I need to, to follow up on. Hmm. So um, when I think of young kids that ask the why questions all the time, why you know it, it can be right. a little annoying. As an adult, it's a really good question to ask, isn't it? It is. Um, this is a Socratic method, right? Often you're asking questions rather than giving answers to kind of help your student to think more clearly, to follow his his first question to its logical conclusion. Or maybe you ask a question that's so penetrating that it helps your 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 student see that that's 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 errant thinking, or you know makes a comparison that he can see. Well, yeah, that's that probably is logically inconsistent. So sometimes you, asking good questions can be really helpful because it's part of that method that's ancient. Mm-hmm. And Jesus often did this. He asked questions rather than provide an answer. And that kind of Socratic idea of, of having conversations back and forth and and kind of talking out the the logical consequences of ideas. I think that's that's could be very very powerful, and and that's probably something we should probably do more. I think our kids have a sense in which we are always yakking at them, rather than eliciting from them logical thinking, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and one way to stop doing that is just to start asking more questions and making less, uh, I guess, proclaiming less less claims, less truth claims, right? Mm-hmm. Even though we, in the end we we want our kids to understand the truth that Scripture teaches, it's how we get there that makes the difference. Yeah. And here's a really simple why question that we could probably start using effective today. Why are you a Christian or why are you not a Christian? That's right. Oh, that's a question that is so so important for young people because I think young people are asking themselves that question. And whether they've voiced it to you as a parent yet, that's another issue altogether. But don't think for a second they're not asking themselves, why do I believe this? Especially when it's got so much – it requires me to live so different. I have to be otherworldly given the world we live in today. So if you want me to, to live in a way that is so countercultural right now, I better have a good reason to believe that this is true, right? I mean, mm-hmm. otherwise, why would I embrace this when when it's so countercultural? It means I'm going to have to basically divide from all my friends at school on, on many of these issues. And I'm going to probably never, you know, my son's working in law enforcement, and he holds a different view. You know, he was telling me, he was in a group meeting the other day, and, and, and his sergeant said, well, I'm not going to ask Jimmy because I know he's not going to say anything bad about anybody. <laughs> and, and <laughs> that's I thought, my boy. <laughs> yeah, I thought, good. You know, to be honest with you, that's that's actually a good sign that, that you live in a different way. Now, it means that you, you're still going to have an opinion, but you're not going to beat somebody up. Yeah. You know. Jim, how's your schedule doing? Do you have to go? I do. I, I was surprised that you haven't heard any noise in the background. My, uh, they're, we're putting in a French drain, which means we have to dig and put a bunch of gravel in, and they but, delivered this stuff too early today. So oh, that sounds expensive too. Right now. Well, it's just something, you know, we don't get much rain here. It's 91 degrees here in Southern California today. Oh. So we don't get a lot of rain, but when we do, we're not ready for it because we don't get much rain. Yeah, <laughs> so, good point. So I discovered that last time it rained. So. Okay, so this is when we say goodbye, huh? Thanks, brother. I appreciate it. I'm so sorry I couldn't stay Oh, that's fine. But listen, let's do this again. I'm happy to do it again. I look forward to it. I know our, our listeners just love you. 
Jay Thanks Warner Wallace it. has been my guest. Head over to coldcasechristianity.com to learn more about Jim. We'll take a little break. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. So glad to have Jay Warner Wallace. I enjoy him. I hope you like him too. He's so interesting. I don't know if you've ever seen any of his Dateline stories, but they are riveting. So if you just Google Dateline and Jay Warner Wallace, uh, it shows the way his brain works. And he took all that skill and those gifts that God has given him, and he has applied it to uh, researching uh, God's Word and defending it. And he's really a great apologist and a great speaker. I heard him speak about five, six years ago, and he gave one of the most compelling 40-minute presentations on the gospel, and it was so powerful, and I'm sure that's on YouTube as well. Anyway, he's a great resource. You head over, and you can learn. uh, He gives away a lot of free things on his website, so he doesn't. He's got a lot of books to sell, but he also just gives away a lot of great resources. And uh, coming up in the next hour, David Murray's going to be joining us. He's a professor of Old Testament and Practical Theology at Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary. He's also an adjunct uh, faculty at Westminster Theological Seminary, so I'm looking forward to chatting with him. And then uh, Dr. Ken Blanchard, uh, One Minute Manager, is going to be joining me at 434, right around there, so that's going to be great, too. So we have a lot coming up um, in the next uh, hour. So... David Murray uh, is not really going to come on until next hour, but he's on the line already. So that is what I call bonus time. So he's going to be joining us in just about a minute. Um, and he is, uh, I don't know where, what part of the country he's in right now. I think he's in Grand, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Yep. 
and we're going to talk about uh, living in a grace-paced life, living a grace-paced life in a burnout culture, and that Christians get depressed too. And this probably applies right now to a lot of people who are going, uh, burning the candle at both ends. You feel like you're working harder, and sometimes it feels less productive, and you have to do more work to get less results. And, you know, you, you can, you can <clears throat> burn out even faster. So speaking of uh, bonus, Ron, I think uh, David's on the, on the line right now. David, welcome. Yes, thank you. Good so, to speak to you again. So nice to have you on. And how, how nice you came on early. <laughs> well, glad I was able to do it. Yeah. So I'm uh, interested in uh, talking to you about the, the burnout culture that we're living in. And it seems like we're working harder for less results and everything is taking more time, even though we're not necessarily uh, going about our everyday routine life. That's certainly how it feels like, isn't it? It's um, it's strange days where we seem on paper to have more time, but in reality, we seem to have less time. And I think the main reason is we're all out of routine. The The fact that, you know, you don't have to travel to work and you don't have set lunch times and coffee times and all that, they would seem to release time. But because we're now in a completely different rhythm and we're we're all a bit discombobulated and we're trying to find a new rhythm and our bodies and minds love rhythm. So until we find that, and it usually takes about a month actually to really establish a new rhythm, we're we're gonna feel a bit frazzled. David, don't you think that God is a God of routine as well? I mean, he puts the, the sun in the morning every day and I mean fills the, the night sky with stars. I mean, I, to me I, I just think there's a beautiful routine to God's handiwork. He is. He's, he's a rhythmic God. He Yes, he can upset his own rhythm. He can intervene whenever. But in general, he's promised stability in his promises to Noah. He shows his consistency in his dealings with his people. And it's interesting, in, in Corinthians, Paul speaks of God. He's not the author of confusion, but of order in the churches. And from my own involvement in people's lives with things like depression, anxiety, burnout, um, almost always it coincides with a lack of routine and rhythm. And I think one of the first things God calls for is to get back into a rhythm, back into a routine. Our bodies love that, our minds love that, and eventually our souls benefit from it too. Yeah, that is such wisdom, David, because there, um, there is so many people because they're out of their routine, they're they're having a hard time uh, knowing how to go about and be productive in their day, um, and they're they're missing the fellowship of, of people, yeah. and they're they're missing their little routines. And for a lot of people, yeah. it's uh, making them a little nuts, including me. Yeah. <laughs> Let's I start know. with me, David. And, uh, <laughs> well, where do you want to start? You well, know? that's a good um, point. We've only got an hour, so. <laughs> um, I think, you know, we need social connection. I mean, even I'm, I'm, an, I'm, an, I'm an introvert. I actually prefer to be on my own, but I know it's not good for me. I know eventually that will lead to a kind of, not depression, but a low mood and low productivity. So um, I deliberately force myself. I've got to mix with people. I've got to connect with people. But now so many people who are used to the hubbub of the office and you know, even just meeting people in public transport or in the coffee shop, it, we don't do that anymore. We're all stuck inside. We're stuck with ourselves, and uh, we're we're kind of drained because of that. Social 
connection is a is a gas. It fuels us. And obviously, extroverts they get more fuel from it. But even introverts need that fuel, you know, to a more limited extent. But we all need it. And without it, yeah, we we get tired and yeah, a bit crazy too. Mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit more uh, in the next half hour about uh, Reset, your book that you wrote called "Living a Grace-Paced Life in a Burnout Culture." And how do we do our our own little reality check as to where we're at in this process? Yeah, a lot of people want to kind of get straight on to what do we need to do to fix this? But I think you've, we've really got to begin with doing some pretty deep diagnosis. Uh, you know, what is the actual problem? We can feel some things are wrong, but what is actually wrong? And so I, I usually sit down with people and, and we work through a number of areas like, you know, how are you doing physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, relationally, morally? And I use a, a checklist that I outline in the book and give give people warning lights to look out for and things that should be sort of flashing blue lights in their in their minds and hearts to say, hey, this is serious. We need we need to take this very seriously and um, really focus on this as a as a serious problem. So reality checks, we don't like them. We like to kid on we're actually better than we are. We're not as unhealthy as we are. And therefore, I think it's very important and sometimes very helpful to have a a partner to do that with, somebody who's objective and who will help us answer the questions very honestly, maybe more honestly than we would do if we were on our own. Yeah. David, let me take a little break. We'll uh, be right back in a few minutes with uh, David Murray. He's written a book called Reset, Living a Grace-Paced Life in a Burnout Culture. We'll take a uh, short break, and David will be my opening guest in the uh, first half of hour two. Be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.